Section 12 of True Bear Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geza Razdana. True Bear Stories by Joaquin Miller. Section 12. The Bear Monarch. Part A. 17. The Bear Monarch. How He Was Captured. Much having been said about bears of late, a young Californian of great fortune and enterprise resolved to set some questions at rest, and, quite regardless of cost or consequences, sent into the mountains for a live grizzly. The details of his capture, the plain story of the long, wild quest, the courage, the cunning, the final submission of the monster, and then the last bulletin about his health, habits, and all that, makes so instructive and pleasing a narrative that I have asked for permission to add it to my own stories. The bear described is at present in our San Francisco Zoo, a fine and greatly admired monarch. Are there any true grizzly bears in California? Undoubtedly there are. I don't know about it. I have a great deal of doubt. Where are they? In the Sierra Madre, in Tulum Canyon, in Siskiyou County, and probably in many other mountain districts. That may be so, but nobody can find them. Now, do you think you could find them? I think I could if I should try. Would you undertake to get a genuine grizzly in this state? Yes, if you want one. How will you have him? Dead or alive? Alive. This conversation was held last May between the proprietor of the examiner and special reporter Alan Kelly. A week ago, Kelly brought home an enormous grizzly bear, lodged the animal temporarily in one of the cages in Woodward's Gardens, and reported to the editor that he had finished that assignment. The following is his account of the hunt and capture. The examiner expedition began the search for a grizzly early in June, starting from Santa Paula and striking into the mountains at Tar Creek, where the Sespe oil wells are bored. The examiner correspondent detailed to catch a bear was accompanied by Demos Bowers of Ventura, who was moved by love of adventure to offer his assistance. During the first part of the trip, the party numbered five persons, including Dad Kaufman, a spry old gentleman of seventy-two years, who was out for the benefit of his health, a packer and a guide, and a person from Santa Paula called Doc who was loaded to the muzzle with misinformation and inspired with the notion that it was legitimate to plunder the expedition because the examiner had plenty of money. The packer was Doc's son, a good man to work, but unfortunately afflicted with similar hallucinations. The expedition was plundered because these persons were trusted on the recommendation of a gentleman who ought to have known better. At Tar Creek, the correspondent was told that the stone corral bear, a somewhat noted grizzly that had killed his man, had been recently on Squaw Flat and had prowled about an old cabin that night, sorting over the garbage heap and pile of tin cans at the door. But when the expedition passed the cabin, no fresh sign was found, and the tracks on Squaw Flat were at least a week old. The first camp was in a clump of chickapin brush at Stone Corral. There were bear tracks and soft ground at the edge of the creek, which induced the hunters to spend two days in prospecting that part of the country. One of the proposed plans for capturing the bear was to run him out of the rocks and brush to some reasonably open bit of country like Squaw Flat, or one of the small level patches near camp and lasso him, 
but the impracticable nature of that scheme was soon demonstrated. On the next day after making camp, the examiner's own bear catcher went out on a nervous black horse called Nig to find out where the stone corral bear was spending the summer, and incidentally to get some venison. The stone corral bear was there or thereabouts beyond any doubt. He ran the correspondent out of the brush and showed a perverse disposition to do all the hunting himself. Nig would not stand to let his rider take a shot, but when the bear gave notice of his presence by growling and smashing down the brush twenty yards away, he wheeled and bolted towards camp. Near the camp, Dad was found rounding up the other horses, who had just been scared from their pasturage by another wandering bear. It was clear that not a horse in the outfit could be ridden to within roping distance of a bear, and it was doubtful if three horses fit for such a job could be found in the country. Some years ago, the ranchmen and vaqueros frequently caught bears with a rope, but even then it was difficult to train horses to the work, and only one horse out of a hundred could be cured of this instinctive dread of a grizzly. It was clear also that there were some defects in the plan of driving the stone corral bear out of the brush, chief of which was the bear's inconsiderate desire to do the driving himself. As a hunting would have to be done afoot, the prospects incident to an attempt to round up a big grizzly among the rocks and chaparral were not peculiarly alluring. Trapping was the only other method that could be suggested, but the absence of any heavy timber would make that difficult. The stone corral is a singular arrangement of huge sandstone ledges on the slope of a mountain, forming a rough enclosure about a quarter of a mile wide and three or four times as long. The country is very rugged and broken for miles around, and except along the creek and on the trail, a horse cannot be ridden through it. The problem of how to catch a bear in such a place was not solved, because the bear cut short its consideration by marching past the camp and lumbering down the creek bed toward the Alder Creek Canyon and the Sespe country. The correspondent stood upon the sandstone ledge as he went by and yelled at him, but he did not quicken his pace. When it became evident that the bear was bound for the Sespe, the horses were saddled. Balaam the burrow was concealed under a mountainous pack, and the march was resumed over the Alder Creek Trail to the deep gorge through which the Sespe River runs. The man who made the Alder Creek Trail was not born to build roads. He laid it out right over the top of a high and steep mountain, when by making a slight detour he could have avoided a difficult and unnecessary climb. In the broiling hot sun of a breezeless day in June, the march over the mountains was hard on men and horses and the pace was necessarily slow. The heat coaxed the rattlesnakes out of their holes, and the angry hum of their rattles was an almost incessant accompaniment to the hoofbeats of the horses. Where the trail wound along a steep slope, affording but slight foothold for an animal, a more than unusually strenuous and insistent singing of a snake, disturbed from his sunny siesta, caused Balaam to jump aside. Balaam avoided the snake, but he lost his balance and rolled down the slope, heels in the air, and pack underneath. The acrobatic feats achieved by Balaam in his struggles to regain his footing were watched by an admiring and solicitous audience, and when he cleverly took advantage of the slight obstruction offered by a manzanita bush and got safely upon his feet, he was loudly applauded. The deep solicitude of the party for the safety of Balaam and his pack was accounted for when he scrambled back to the trail and gravely walked up to the packer to have his pack straightened. Every man anxiously fell to the pack and heaved a sigh of relief. The bottles containing OPS, antidote for snake bite, were not broken, but it was a narrow escape. Great beeswax, said the doctor. 
Suppose those bottles had been smashed, and then some one of us should go to work and bite himself with a snake. Wouldn't that be a fix? Dog dern if it don't make my blood run cold to think of it, said Dad. Everybody's blood seemed to be congealing, and as the pack was loose and the antidote accessible, an ounce of prevention was administered to each man, and Balaam was rewarded for his timely agility with a handful of sugar. No more accidents occurred, and late in the afternoon the cavalcade slid, coasted, and scrambled down the last steep hill to the Sespe Canyon, where a camp was made under an immense oak beside a deep rocky pool. That evening, around the campfire, some strange bear stories were evolved from either the memories or imagination of the hunters. In the morning, the search for bear signs was resumed and prosecuted until noon without success. Dad was lured by the swarms of trout in the stream and went fishing. Dad is not a scientific fly fisherman. His favorite method is to select a shady nook on the bank, sit down with his back against a rock, tie a sinker to a large and gaudy fly, and angle on the bottom for the biggest trout he can see. He generally carries a book in his pocket, and when the trout remains unresponsive to the allurements of the gaudy fly, he fastens his rod to a bush and reads until he falls asleep. In the afternoon, one of the party went out over a long, bushy ridge, and the correspondent pushed on down the gorge in search of bear signs. All the bear tracks led up toward the Hot Springs Canyon, indicating that the grizzlies had begun their animal migration to the Elmo, Fraser, and Pine Mountains, where large bands of sheep are herded through the summer. Some of the tracks were large and fresh, and a person might come upon a bear at any time in the bottom of the canyon. Preparations were made for following the bears and directions given for an early start in the morning. The doctor recollected that he had important business in Santa Paula that required his immediate attention, and he wouldn't have time to follow the grizzlies through the rugged pass of the mountains. Accordingly, he and Dad decided to remain in Sespe camp a day or two, enjoy the fishing, and then return to Santa Paula, and the bear hunting party that saddled up and struck out on the trail of the grizzly in the morning was reduced to three. The trail led through the Hot Springs Canyon, where boiling hot sulfur waters flows out of the ground in a stream large enough to sensibly affect the temperature of the Sespe River, into which it runs. This canyon was formerly a beautiful camping spot, and was resorted to by many persons who believed that bathing in sulfur water would restore their health. But about three years ago, a cloudburst uprooted all the trees and converted the green Cienaga into a rocky, desolate flat as barren and unattractive as the sharp, treeless peaks surrounding the canyon. A few mountain sheep inhabit the mountains about the hot springs, and occasionally one is seen standing upon some high and inaccessible cliff, but it is very seldom that a hunter succeeds in getting a pair of bighorns. The next camp was on the Piru Creek, where it runs through the Mutaw Ranch. One of the most promising mining districts in this part of the state takes its name from the Piru, and in years gone by, a great deal of gold was taken from the diggings along the stream. One of the most successful miners was Mike Brannan, whose cabins and mining appliances lie unused and decaying about six miles from the place where the expedition camped. From the camp on the Mutaw, the expedition followed Piru Creek down to Lockwood, and the latter up to the divide between Lockwood Valley and the Cuddy Ranch at the foot of Mount Pinos, called Sawmill Mountain by the settlers. The mountain is about 10,000 feet high and is covered with heavy pine timber. Ever since Hagen and Carr's sheep have been on the mountain, 
The bears from 40 miles around have made an annual marauding expeditions, and kept the herders on the jump all the summer. The first band of sheep in the examiner expedition arrived at the old sawmill simultaneously this year, and the Basque who was herding the band, having a very lively sense of the danger of his situation, pitched his tent close to the camp, where he would be under the protection of three rifles. The Basque had never been on the mountain before, but he had heard about the bears and their audacious raids, and he was not at all enamored of his job. When the campfires were started, and the forest became an enclosing wall of gloom, behind which lurked all the mysteries and menaces of the mountain, the Basque came shyly into camp, bringing a shoulder of mutton with which to establish friendly relations, and under the mellowing influence of a glass of something hot, he became confidential and as communicative as his broken jargon of French and California Spanish would permit. He had come to the mountain reluctantly, and having been told about the herder whose hand was torn off by a grizzly last year, he was still more unwilling to remain. He would stay as long as the examiner party remained near him, but when the hunters went away, he proposed to quit and hasten back to the plains, where we'd have nothing worse than the coyotes to encounter. Every night after that, so long as the hunters were in that camp, the Basque came and sat at the fire until bedtime, talking about los osos. And when the grass and water gave out and the expedition was obliged to move camp about two miles, the gentle shepherd packed his blankets over the trail to Bakersfield, leaving his flock in the care of a leathery-skinned, bear-hardened Mexican. The bears were later this year than usual in coming to the mountain, probably because the warm weather was longer delayed and for many days the hunters scanned the trails in the canyons in vain for the footprints of grizzlies. The first indication of their arrival was given in a somewhat startling way to the correspondent one evening as he was slowly toiling through a deep rocky ravine back to camp after a weary tramp over the foothills of the big mountain. The sun had set, and the bottom of the ravine was dark at night. The belated searcher for bear signs skirted a dense willow thicket and brushed against the bushes with his elbow. Ruff, ruff, snorted a bear within ten feet of him, invisible in the thicket. His heart thumped, and his rifle lock clicked together, and which sound was the louder, he could not tell. For a few seconds, he stood at the edge of the thicket with his rifle ready, expecting the rush of a bear. But the animal was not in a warlike mood and did not rush, and the hunter cautiously backed away about twenty yards up the steep side of the ravine. The cracking of brush indicated that Bruin was moving in the thicket, but nothing could be seen in the gathering gloom. Two or three large rocks rolled down into the willows, started the bear out on a run, and he could be heard crashing his way down the ravine and splashing into the pools as he went. The remainder of the journey back to camp was made through the open pine forest on the top of the mountain. Superintendent McCullough, who has charge of Hagen and Carr's sheep camps on Pinos Mountain, stopped at the examiner camp when he made his inspecting tours, and consultations were held with him about the bears. From the reports given him by the herders, he judged that only the bears that lived on the mountain were prowling about, and that the invading army had not arrived from the Alamo and the Sespe region. A large cinnamon bear had walked into one camp about ten miles distant and killed two sheep in daylight, but the grizzlies had not begun to eat mutton. In July or August, there would be bears enough to keep a man busy shinning up trees. Last year, he said, there were at least 40 bears on the mountain, and they visited some of the sheep camps every night. Sometimes two or three bears would raid a camp, tree the herder, 
and kill several sheep. The herders were not expected to fight bears or attempt to drive them away, and the owners reckoned upon the loss of several hundred sheep every summer. Shortly before the 1st of July, the camp was moved to Seymour Spring, about two miles from the mill, where good water and feed were plenty, and search for bear sign was continued. Every day some deep gorge or rocky ravine was visited and thoroughly hunted, and a deer was killed occasionally, but no sign of bears was found until the 3rd of July, when the tracks of a very large grizzly were discovered crossing a ridge between the Lockwood Valley and the Seymour. The tracks were followed across the Seymour Valley to a spur of the mountain between the Mill Ravine and a deep canyon to the westward. Camp was moved to a green Cienaga at the head of the ladder, which was christened Bear Canyon, and the building of a trap was begun near the mouth, about half a mile from camp. Three large pine trees served as corner posts for a pen built of twenty-inch logs, gained at the corners and fastened together with stout oak pins. The pen was about twelve feet long, four feet high, and five feet wide inside, and the door was made of pine logs sunk into the ground and wedged and pinned securely. A door of four-inch planks, so heavy that it required three men to raise it, was set in front, between oak guides pinned vertically to the trees and suspended by a rope running over a pulley and back to a trigger that engaged with a pivoted stick of oak to which the bait was to be fastened. Five days were consumed in the construction of the trap, and while the work was going on, a bear visited the camp at night and stampeded all the saddle and pack animals out of the canyon. A German prospector named Sparkule, who was staying temporarily in the camp, was cured of a severe case of skepticism that night. Sparkule believed nothing that he could not see, and he declared with exasperating iteration, I believe there don't was any bears in der country. I look for em every day, thinking perhaps I might could see one, but I don't could see any. And every night before he turned in, Sparkula said, Well, might did a bear come tonight. I wish I could see one, but I think there don't was any bears at all. Sparkula scorned the shelter of the bow shed, under which the examiner outfit slept, and spread his blankets on top of a bank about six feet above a rocky shelf that was used as a pantry and kitchen. His only weapon was his pick, and he was not afraid of being disturbed by any prowling animal. End of section 12 Recording by Geza Drozdina